0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week, we have a very special guest, Mark Mallett-Brown, who is President of the Open Society Foundations. Prior to joining OSF, which is the the world's largest private funder of independent groups working for justice, democratic governance and human rights, Mark served in a a variety of roles, including as head of the the UNDP from uh, 1999 to 2005, as Secretary General Kofi Annan's uh, Chief of Staff at the UN and as Deputy Secretary General of of the whole UN before joining the British government. Uh, of prime minister gordon brown as the minister responsible for africa and asia from 2009 to 2007 to 2009 um, but as well as having uh, a very distinguished career within international organizations and within government, Mark has been um, involved in, in global politics from all sorts of different angles, setting up lots of NGOs and think tanks, um, getting involved in political campaigns, has worked in every continent, I think. And um, so, what we hope to do today is, is both talk about how he sees the world, but also how um, the Open Society Foundations are adapting to uh, a very different world to the one in which they were originally uh, conceived. So, thank you very much for joining, Mark. Well, thank you, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Some people be very familiar with, with Open Society; it's one of the, the b- closest partners uh, and biggest supporters of ECFR from the very beginning, which I should make clear from the beginning. But other people uh, may be uh, less so. Um, it is, uh, as I said, the the largest um, private funder of, of of groups working on uh, open society issues. But uh, not everyone is going to be totally familiar with with what the open society is. So maybe before we start talking about what your what you do and how you see the world, you can just explain very briefly what. Yeah, what open society means and what the open society model means for you and the story behind OSF. Well thanks,
1: Mark. And you know, open society was uh the brainchild and uh of George Soros, uh himself a sort of Jewish uh refugee from uh, initially from Nazism in Hungary and then subsequently from communism and he came via the UK and the LSE uh, to the West and thence to the US where he made a fortune uh, in the financial markets, but retained a lifelong, to this day, passion and curiosity about uh, politics and individual freedom and you know, was a student of the writings of Karl Popper and uh, believes passionately perhaps in reaction to that Nazi and communist experience of his youth in you know, individuals' rights to freedom of thought and choice and speech. Uh, and, you know, he's so much a child of the 20th century uh, and its wars and its conflicts uh, around rights and people's right to freedom, uh, that it's sort of shaped the DNA of of OSF, which, you know, began actually not literally in, in his home region in the latter years of communism, but actually first in South Africa during apartheid, and then almost immediately on the back of that to Hungary and, and, and Czechoslovakia and Poland to sort of encourage dissidents for with support to their uh, freedom of speech efforts and to help protect their human rights. And that's the legacy we've taken forward of an organization devoted uh, to democracy, to human rights, to related freedoms. And and for years, you know, it the world seemed to be going OSF's way. Uh, lately, of course, uh, it's changed very dramatically. And in the last 17, 18 years, we've seen annual setbacks in the level of and quality of democracy, and human rights protection around the world. So, you know, to the extent we now have to rethink our mission, it's not around our commitment to that, but about how in this new world do we more effectively fight for those goals of democracy and human rights when they're not automatically... a given a good that every government wants to pursue if it's only nudged in the right direction.
0: So you've been at the helm of of OSF um what for a couple of years now, I think. Um and uh there's been a lot of uh articles about OSF recently, not least because there's been a kind of historic um uh generational shift as George Soros has has handed over um the, his position as chair of the board to, to his son, Alex Soros, but also you have uh, embarked on, on quite a big process of, of, of change and reform within OSF as a way of of refreshing that mission. Um, it's been written up in all sorts of different newspaper articles in different places, um, but it would be great maybe just to hear from you both what lies behind it and what um, your kind of vision is for for. Uh, for, for the new phase of, of OSF's uh, life as a, as a global organization and as a, as a philanthropic force for, for open society values?
1: Well, as I say, I mean, we remain true to the mission and we also are going to go on spending at least as much as we have been spending on our programs and goals. But I think the challenge is we would just ended up you know, fighting on too many fronts, we'd lost an ability to prioritize where we could make the most difference. So we'd spread globally and, you know, active in every region of the world, really. Um, uh, And, you know, the size of our grants seemed to inexorably shrink as we found more and more worthy causes uh, to support. And, you know, when we stepped back and looked at the impact, we realized You know, at a time of crisis for democracy and human rights, we simply weren't in all cases making the difference we should be. We were spread too thin. And so this issue of making choices, of prioritizing what we do and prioritizing against, you know, a really opportunistic uh, set of criteria around, you know, what's going to work? Where can we win back some human rights? Where can we help turn the needle on democracy? We can't do everything, so let's make choices and let's make them very pragmatically about where we can make the biggest difference. And, you know, moving from a foundation which, in a sense you know, become a comfortable long-term source of support to to many wonderful grantees around the world, to one where we're saying, actually, from now on, we've got to make much tougher choices. We can't do everything. We've got to do the things which are going to make a difference is extremely unsettling to our staff, to our grantee partners. And I get that. But, you know, ultimately, we've got to kind of lift our eyes to the horizon and say... You know, after 18 years of democratic decline around the world of, you know, large, larger and larger parts of the global population, you know, being increasingly inimical to the ideas of open society. You know, we can't just go on doing it as we did before. We've, we've got to be much more tough minded with ourselves about choosing issues and causes and opportunities where we think we can really get in there win and make a difference and and that's what's going on and of course you know it is highly unsettling as i acknowledge for lots of people and you know you're seeing that in the press and elsewhere so
0: we should talk a bit about some of the areas where you think you can make the biggest difference and maybe some of the areas where where you think that it's it's harder uh, going but maybe you can talk a bit about like also to what extent this represents a return to to some of the the kind of founding values in terms of how you operate. Because I think one of the things that distinguished OSF from the very beginning from a lot of other organizations is that because George Soros is is not just alive, but he's somebody who um, is willing to to take risks, um, to go into areas where other people um, have traditionally maybe (laughs) avoided getting involved. But he's also somebody who can make big bets on things. He's done that in his in his uh, uh, career as a as a financier as well as a philanthropist. That when he sees an opening, he's been willing to to to, to go in in a big way that maybe more kind of bureaucratic uh, foundations have uh, have not been able to do that. Is that part of the the sort of thinking behind the, these reforms that you're talking about? Yeah.
1: It it is. It's very much about recovering that nimbleness. Um, You know, we'd arrived at a point where just too many decisions were made by committee and not by smart, knowledgeable people uh, doing deep external diligence and search to really work out what might work, to be willing to take risks and do the unconventional rather than the conventional, and to, you know, make the bet necessary to succeed. And... um, you know, that spirit had got lost somewhere in internal committee meetings, etc. And so, you know, going towards, you know, much more of a kind of, if you like, social investor model where, um, you know, there is rigor about the choices we make, but it's smart people making smart choices is where we want to get to. And we've got lots of smart people. It's just they've been you know, find themselves, you know, in, in, disempowered inside a, you know, a system of too many layers, too many committees, too many transactions and internal bargaining processes, all of which just take the sharpness off the proposals and don't make them the cutting edge uh, kind of Interventions that we 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 made in the beginning and which we want to make sure we we return to, and you know it it sort of can sound as though oh goodness the foundation must have completely lost its way in recent years. It hasn't. It's still very good, but it's operating in a world where the challenges to open society is so profound that very good isn't enough. We've got to be excellent. I, I think just the one thing is you know big bets don't necessarily have to have a big dollar sign attached to them. I think George would say that, you know, some of the best things he's done have been, you know, a fellowship to an individual, which isn't a big bet, but it's often choosing an individual others might not have had the courage to choose. So it's all about sort of trying to understand where the comparative advantage of the private wealth of a foundation lies and it's you know it's that ability to to really go out and find the best not to have to make the compromises that so many public institutions or commercial institutions have to make between different stakeholder groups you know we've got the opportunity and privilege and therefore the responsibility to just go and do what's really going to make a difference because we don't have to encumber ourselves with you know all the sort of stakeholder trade-offs that so many others have to and you know it leaves me talking often of patient and urgent capital the patient capital is you know taxpayers get impatient if something hasn't happened fairly quickly you know we because of the private nature of our endowment can take the time until something works similarly we can move very quickly and hence the term urgent capital to do things that others, you know, just can't mobilize in time to do. But then we also have to recognize our limitations. We're a foundation, but we don't have an army. We don't have a state. uh, We don't have the legitimacy of being, you know, a a public institution. Um, So, you know, we can do catalytic things, but, you know, ultimately for those things to be sustainable and taken to scale, you know, we have to persuade others, usually governments or large civil society groups, to come in on the back of what we've experimented and take it up to scale. So, you know, we, we, we need to understand what we can do and what others need
0: to do. So um that's about the the how. Um can you talk a bit more about the what? Where where are these kind of areas where you think you need urgent capital or patient capital and where you think you can make a real difference?
1: Well, there are always the tragic examples that come up for urgent capital. I mean, just in the last week, I had to approve an emergency grant to bring human rights activists out of Sudan um, because their lives are threatened in Khartoum and elsewhere. And you know, we've had to do similar things in Afghanistan and other places where, you know, often the West moves on and uh, to the next crisis and, you know, brave human rights defenders are left in huge danger. There are also, you know, often, you know, moments when you know, elections come off the rails or are in danger of coming off the rails and support to try and make sure that the election is credibly counted and that there's proper observation of the election, maybe, you know, urgent tasks that, you know, have come up because of the nature of the political developments. On the longer term side, you know, I, I think our view is that, you know, we are at a really catalytic moment or pivotal moment of change in the world where, you know, an awful lot of the institutions and arrangements that have governed both international affairs and national affairs, you know, are are really past their sell-by date. You know, we're moving out of an era of market-led solutions to problems to one where, you know, governments, civil society, markets are in much more of a sort of new equilibrium of partnership around finding solutions and where you know the thinking about those new policy instruments to sort of make this new sort of if you like trinity of power work uh people government and corporates um you know, needs a new generation of think tanks, of uh, other policy institutions which are going to develop the thinking. and, And we invest in that. And I would, for example, cite the example of our investment in ECFR, where, you know, we've watched you, we've proudly watched you grow from your first baby steps to being a real force on European policy in the world today. And you know, we view Europe finding its place in the world as, you know, one of the key geopolitical strategic challenges of the day. And we look at the role that an ECFR can play in informing policy in Europe, in, you know, igniting the debates around Europe's choices in its eastern neighborhood in its north african neighborhood in terms of its relations with the u.s and china you know in all these areas which ecfr has now you know gotten t- stuck into um you know these are key issues which are going to shape the future of geopolitics now you know it's not our business to to tell the German chancery what to do or uh, the Quai d'Orsay in Paris. But, um, you know, we can, through supporting a think tank like ECFR, stimulate the policy choices which will filter into the debates in those institutions. And so, you know, we look at the years it's taken to get ECFR to where it is now as, you know, an incredibly good investment and like any such investments, it's had its moments when it's looked wobbly and then it's gathered new courage and strength. And in National Crisis Group, a very similar organization where we've similarly been there from the beginning. And, you know, so building institutions which are going to be part of the political debate and voice about the shape of international affairs for the future, you know, is a key part of our mission
0: so um you talked about europe and the importance of europe then there were some press reports about osf withdrawing from uh from europe um do you want to talk a bit about how where europe fits into this kind of new global picture that you're talking about and is it true that you're withdrawing from europe
1: no no it's not true at all um you know we are making some sharp staff reductions in europe but you know and and particularly in our berlin office and but two thirds of those reductions are operation staff because as we move to this new much nimbler uh model uh of a much more thinly but but highly staffed uh f- programmatic function we have been able to just migrate a lot of our Grant making work away from old systems which were much more labor intensive towards uh, ones which are i t based platforms but also a much simplified set of processes so you know this has this is about improved working methods it's got nothing to do with uh you know where where the weight of the work falls. Uh, having said that, there will be definitely changes in our European programming. Um, you know, we, for example, announced a multi-year $100 million grant, to set up an independent Roma Foundation, uh, an issue we've been deeply involved with in Europe for a long time. As I have said, we're going to continue to invest heavily, and I expect more heavily, uh, in uh, organizations dealing with Europe's place in the world. And we're not going to walk away from the critical European challenge of, you know, sustaining its uh, democratic future, even as sort of threats from the authoritarian right, you know, appear to jeopardize it across a number of European countries at the moment. But what we're not going to do is spread funding thinly across a huge mass of small organizations, we will be very rigorous about putting our money into those European organizations, which we think can advance a democratic Europe at home and abroad and in the world. So, um, you know, that's um, the challenge that grantees will need to deal with. And I think our good grantees will relish it, actually, because I think they all share our ambition to come on, we've got to get stuck in, we've got to fight back and, you know, really make sure democratic values
0: prevail in Europe. What do you think OSF can do to to support democratic values in Europe? Well, you know, we've, we've in the past, um,
1: you know, done and supported an awful lot of social research to try and understand, you know, why certain groups in Europe have felt alienated and have turned to uh, extremist solutions? Um, you know, I think at this point, uh, in a sense, the argument's moved on. It's less about the analysis and it's more about, you know, how do you rebuild uh, democracy in Europe but elsewhere in the world too, which really works for people? We've just done uh, what we call the OSF barometer on on. You know the state of democracy in the world, and actually the concept of democracy is in much better shape than people anticipated. You know, with huge majorities across the 36 countries we polled, which represented almost, you know, I mean, more than well, nearly six billion people, so overwhelming majority of the world. Um, you know, huge majorities in favour of democracy as a preferred system of government, and the polling was in. Included countries like china um, and yet, at the same time, a deep disappointment with how government is delivering um, you know and and a feeling we love human rights, but if human rights doesn't protect us. Should we continue to prioritize it if democracy doesn't deliver for us in terms of food, affordable food on the table, or health care and education for our kids and family? Um, you know, does that mean, you know, we're going to just for the sake of principle stick with democracy, or are we going to embrace a a strongman government which may deliver where democracy didn't? And, you know, that's where this is being lost and won is in democracy's delivery and performance uh, and you know so i think those are the issues we're starting to get much more interested in uh rather than just the abstract ones of you know human rights being a good in themselves and something that everybody will want to campaign for um it, it was always an oversimple narrative to believe that and i think that's become more and more the case and in fact now you know, a lot of the old approaches of naming and shaming governments because they didn't, you know, do enough on human rights look increasingly tired and irrelevant. You know, uh example I've, I've been giving in recent months to my colleagues is, you know, Prime Minister Modi of India, who's got a horrible reputation on the rights of Muslims in his country, you know went to Washington, got the biggest steak dinner ever given there. So, and yet, you know, a decade ago, an American president of the day would have felt obliged to, you know, be really sort of finger wagging at a Modi. Today, the importance of the contest with China means the US president isn't going to do that. And secondly, probably a more thoughtful, the thoughtful US president could equally argue, and it frankly would backfire if I tried, kind of thing. So, you know, we've moved into a very different world where the sort of values based uh, culture which we could appeal to, in which governments sort of reveled and all were trying to improve their rights record, has been in, replaced by a much more interest based world where you know, alliances matter in an era of geopolitical tension and competition. And you've got to find new ways of making the case for human rights and development and democracy. And it's got to be around that it gives people better lives and it therefore gives governments and countries greater security uh, because it gives individuals greater security. Uh, And so the whole argumentation has to change and i i want us to be thought leaders with our grantees and partners in how we develop that those new approaches and those new la- that new language about rights in an era of national interests and competition
0: so your whole um which you've just published is, is fascinating we'll put a link up to it in uh, in the show notes um but it, the, at the end of it, there are a couple of charts which really show how different the world is that we're talking about now. There's one chart which asks um, co- people whether they think China or the USA will be the most powerful or influential country in 2030. And they um, there is a real kind of north-south uh, divide for for a lot of countries. You know, Pakistan, Ghana, Argentina, Turkey, Tunisia, Senegal, Ethiopia, Mexico. Um, but even countries like Italy, they they will think that China is going to be more powerful than the US. Ukraine is is the outlier on the on the other side, where uh, many more people think that um, that the US will be powerful. And then you ask another one about whether people are kind of positive or negative about China's rise. And there, there's a real kind of uh, divide as well between particularly countries in the, I, I suppose, in the global South who, by and large, and in, across the Middle East, have got a very positive perception of China's rise. And then, um, you know, countries like Japan, the UK, US, Germany, and India are actually, um, you know, much more sanguine about about uh, about China's rise. But how do these kind of big... Um, tectonic shifts in the global architecture of power filter through into OSF's operations because you're a you know foundation that is global that's worked all over the place and has been very bottom up in terms of how it's worked so typically it's worked through local partners, local foundations who have legitimacy, or not a kind of foundation that swoops in um and and tells people what to do. But at the same time, the, you know, obviously George Soros is somebody who has European and American roots and a lot of the the kind of traditional partners um uh have been uh in the the kind of global north. Um how does this kind of balance shift in in the balance of power, but also the kind of the increasing desire by countries to take control of their own affairs and to push back against Western uh, imperialism in all of its different guises uh, affect uh, open society? It's a very good set of
1: questions, Mark. And I think that, you know, um, we are enormously Lucky as really the most global of any foundation because of our geographic footprint, and we've, you know, made it uh, a sine qua non of this real current reorganization that we don't lose that that uh, that ability to really have our ear close to the ground is critical because you know these tectonic plates are shifting but creating very unusual geological political patterns in different places you know um it's not a uniform set of changes as you've just pointed out you know it is part of a reorganization into two camps but you know even within that you know still uh, for example, U.S. is the favorite place for people, uh, in this poll, uh, even those, many of those who anticipate that it will lose its leadership, uh, to, to, to China. Um, and there are massive age differences with younger people, you know, less, uh, enchanted with democracy than their, their older Parents generation. uh, And that's sort of true across most of the most most countries. Uh, And, you know, so sort of making sure that whatever we do, you know, is really filtered through that local prism of local understanding and knowledge is absolutely. you know, critical. And as I was sort of working my way through the charts, and you see the ambivalence in many countries, uh, you know, they may all believe in democracy, but do they believe democracy is the way, you know, for their own country's government. And, you know, the figures are fascinating, because each of them reflects a national history. So, you know, Bangladesh, like democracy in principle, but it's a country where democratic opposition has been sufficiently suppressed by the ruling party that people seem to have some sort of aspiration to see a military leadership there because it may be the only way to get to get change in the current leadership. Or you look at Russia, where you know democracy is. Not something that people are all rushing to, because the liberal option doesn't appear to many Russians to be the obvious next step after Putin, uh, rather a more right-wing figure who might prosecute more successfully a war that they actually still in many cases appear to believe in, but you know doubt Putin's vigor in prosecuting it, you know means that they too, you know, don't automatically swing to the democratic banner, but then you look at an Egypt. Where actually the huge majority want to see a democratic country because they've got an unpopular military government, um, and so you know, unless you understand these issues in that country by country context, um, you know, you're 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 going to miss the mark. And you know, I think the you know one one of the sort of uh, sort of legendary shortcomings of Foundations has been, you know, the the man or woman from New York showing up in a country with, you know, a pre-prescribed solution to uh, a development or, or, or human rights or policy issue. And, you know, we're all about local solutions, but local solutions to problems that are linked up globally, such as the state of democracy.
0: So we're almost out of time but the one thing which we haven't talked about is is one of the things we talk about the most on this podcast and which people uh, across Europe are, are completely um, obsessed with and and rightly so because it's it's turned the world upside down so much and that's the that's Ukraine and the situation in Ukraine and OSF has has been you know very active in Ukraine for a very long time has been one of the biggest uh, international uh, supporters of, uh, of of civil society in Ukraine can you talk a bit about how Ukraine fits into this new picture.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think President Zelensky will be at the UN General Assembly opening week next week. And I think we're going to see in technicolor the issue, which is he will almost certainly draw much of the oxygen. Uh, and, you know, his attacks on Russia will be headline news across the Western press, at least. Um, and yet there will be a resentful... Uh, more silent constituency at the UN, which will say, but just a minute, you know, partly as a consequence of the war, issues like grain prices, but more generally because of some long running issues going back to COVID and before around in- in- imbalances in the global financial system, long run problems like climate. Uh, there are parts of the world where the crisis and risk to life is on a similar scale to what it is in Ukraine almost, but where, you know, there simply isn't the same attention and political priority. And and so my argument has been, if you want to support Ukraine, support the other crises as well. And in other words, you know, and and I think the U.S. is taking heed of this kind of uh, uh, argument and, you know, is trying to get more resources to the World Bank for its poverty and climate work and to, you know, generally support issues like the African Union getting a seat at the G20 and, you know, other changes of this kind. But it's risks always being a little too little too late. Uh, And, you know, there will be sort of ungenerous comparisons between uh, the you know, level of political will when it comes to Ukraine uh, versus the incremental progress on issues like developing country debt or climate finance, and and you know we've, we've we've got to bridge that. We've got to sort of rebuild a sense of an international system linked together by you know solidarity um, and. We're going to see anything but solidarity on display in New York next week at Unger, I suspect.
0: Okay. Can I just ask one final, final question before we go to our bookshelf uh, segment, which is um, about the sort of challenge of of running an organisation which is so heavily surrounded um, by conspiracy theories and disinformation. I mean, how do you deal with that um, do you have? Uh, is it just something that you've got to to live with, like the like the weather, or are there things which um, which you think OSF can do to to try and cut a path through, uh, you know, the kind of thicket of um, of disinformation of which has attached itself to OSF probably more than any other um, uh, big foundation that people have heard of?
1: Yeah, no, I think it has, and I, I I'm not happy with it. I think it in some ways you know, it inevitably, you know, impedes our effectiveness at times because people wonder what are they up to, what are their motives, and, you know, it, and, and and we have to dispel that. And, you know, we're very keen to, you know, do all we can for people to see that, you know, actually, um, you know, a foundation of this kind recognizes its constraints, recognizes its limited legitimacy compared to a national government, but also recognizes its assets that we discussed earlier in this conversation around, you know, its urgent and patient capital, its ability to act effectively where and more quickly than perhaps others can. Um, and, and to sort of get out there with a strong communication, you know, around those virtues, but above all, a strong communication around success. You know, a view I've developed over a lifetime is people only look at the sort of shortcomings under the bonnet when the car has broken down and is beside the road. Um, and so, you know, kind of getting back on the highway and, you know, is, is, is I think, key for the organisation. And, you know, I think then... A lot of the suspicion and criticism will fall away. But, you know, the final point is, you know, institutions going way beyond OSF, other foundations, donor countries, churches, all sorts of groups, you know, perhaps correctly face a degree of skepticism and second guessing uh, about their purpose and mission. Which didn't happen in a more paternalistic, benign age before, if you like. And I think, you know, a lot of the questioning is actually pretty healthy.
0: Okay. Um, we've run over slightly over our 30 minutes, but it's been fascinating talking to you, Mark. Well, there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment do you have any uh, recommendations for for our listeners apart from the open society barometer which we will post a link to well thank you at least so i feel
1: like the man on desert island choices is, i've got still one book left you've you, you're putting the bible up already the uh, um uh the barometer. Um, You know, it's the one time of the year I get to read a lot of novels coming out of August and summer. And I read some very good ones, but limited to one a French novel, uh, Pierre Lemaître, called The Wide World, which is an extraordinary. I mean, uh, one of the reviewers which led me to read it described it as a Balzacian novel, a great sweeping sort of social history from Beirut, just after the Second World War of a family of French soap makers um making it for the wealthy elites of of the middle east uh to a generation which ends up in vietnam and in paris uh living through you know all the dramas of french decolonization and french post-world war down on its heelsness and it's Just a wonderful read. And what's more is I've got two great summers ahead of me because there are two more volumes in the
0: trilogy to come. Fantastic. Well, we'll put up links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do head to whatever platform you use to download this episode and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help bring other people to the podcast but for now from mark mallet brown and myself mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher for this podcast is anand sundar and the editor of this episode is mirea faro sarats